0: Well, greetings, everyone. We'll be beginning a new series this evening on church history. So uh, I'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into tonight's study. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have providentially protected your church down through the centuries, and even though people have been unfaithful and have gone astray, you have still preserved your word for us and you have preserved your church for us and made us a part of your church, your body, the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you for the protection that it gives us in giving the the doctrines that you have delivered to us through your apostles, secure down through the centuries. And We ask that you would help us to understand the workings of of your providential will through the centuries, through the many centuries of, that you have preserved your church. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I said, tonight we begin church history, and we'll begin by looking at the church fathers. So this is Church Fathers Part 1. It will take us several episodes to go through. The church fathers. But before I talk about the church fathers, I first want to talk about the apostles, especially the other apostles. And by the other apostles, I mean the apostles who are less known, the less known apostles. We know quite a bit about the apostle Peter and the apostle John, because John wrote a gospel and three Epistles and Book of Revelation, and we also know a lot about the apostle who was not one of the twelve disciples, the apostle Paul. But if we want to know about the other apostles, we have to look at tradition and church history and so forth to get a picture of what they did after the days of, after the day of Pentecost. So we'll begin by looking at the apostles. We start with, of course, Peter, one of the well-known apostles. We know that Jesus told Peter he would die as a martyr. But scripture doesn't record the death of Peter. The records of early church history indicate that Peter was crucified. Eusebius cites the testimony of Clement, who says that before Peter was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. As he watched her being led to her death, Clement says Peter called to her by name, saying, Remember the Lord. When it was Peter's turn to die, he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die as his Lord had died. And thus he was nailed to a cross, head downward. It is believed that Peter and Paul were both martyred at Rome and both in the same year, AD 67. Uh, The conventional view is that that Peter uh, went to Rome and that he was martyred in Rome. Uh, There are some who disagree with that. And I may talk a little bit about that when we get to uh, Simon Magus and the the, uh, heresies of the early church. Andrew, one of the lesser known apostles Andrew was the first of all the the disciples to be called. He was responsible for introducing his more dominant brother, Peter, to Christ. His eagerness to follow Christ combined with his zeal for introducing others to him typifies Andrew's character. Tradition says Andrew took the gospel north. Eusebius, the ancient church historian, says Andrew went as far as Scythia, that's in the... uh, further south region of Russia by the the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. That's why Andrew is the the patron saint of Russia. He's also the patron saint of Scotland. He was ultimately crucified in Achaia, which is in southern Greece, near Athens. One account says he led the wife of a provincial Roman governor to Christ, and that infuriated her husband. He demanded that his wife recant her devotion to Jesus Christ, and she refused. So the governor had Andrew crucified. By the governor's orders, those who crucified him lashed him to his cross instead of nailing him in order to prolong his sufferings. Tradition says it was a, a saltire or an X shaped cross. By most accounts, he hung on the cross for two days, exhorting passers by to turn to Christ for salvation. After a lifetime of ministry, in the shadow of his more famous brother, Peter, and in the service of his Lord, he met a similar fate as theirs. Men faithful and still endeavoring to bring people to Christ right to the end. The name James. There are several Jameses in the New Testament. Uh, in, in English, we say James. The name James is the equivalent of the Hebrew name Jacob or as we say in Hebrew, Yaakov. As I said, there are several Jameses in the New Testament. First of all, there is James, the author of the book of James, the the brother of Jesus. He was not one of the 12 disciples. He was not one of the 12 disciples. He became a leader of the church in Jerusalem and he was the spokesman who delivered the ruling at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So that's probably the the best known James, but he was not one of the 12 disciples. There are two Jameses who were in the 12 disciples. Uh, The the better known of the two is James, the the brother of the apostle John. Remember that James and John were, were nicknamed the sons of thunder. So this James was the son of Zebedee his mother was named Salome. And incidentally, she was one of the, of the women who came to Jesus' tomb on a Sunday morning when Jesus had risen from the dead. The other James, who was one of the 12, is known as James the Less. He was the son of Alphaeus. His mother was named Mary, and he had a brother named Joseph. James the less so let's let's look at those two James the, the brother of John and James the less this James was the first of the apostles to be martyred and the only apostle whose martyrdom is recorded in the New Testament we think that all of the apostles uh, with the exception of John were martyred but James is the only one who's actually recorded in the New Testament his martyrdom he was put to death by Herod the I in a futile effort to stop the growing church. We've seen down through the centuries how, how successful that was, trying to stop the church by, by persecuting Christians. We can read about his, uh, his martyrdom in Acts chapter 12. James was nicknamed Camel Knees because his knees were believed to be callous from praying so much. History records that James' testimony bore fruit right up until the moment of his execution. Eusebius passes on an account of James' death that came from Clement of Alexandria. Clement says that one, the one who led James to the judgment seat, when he saw him bearing his testimony, was moved and confessed that he was himself also a Christian. They were both therefore, he says, led away together and on the way, he begged James to forgive him. And James, after considering a little said, peace be with you and kissed him. And thus, they were both beheaded at the same time. James the less. The Greek word for less is mikros. It literally means little Its primary meaning is small in stature. So it could refer to James physical features. Perhaps he was a short or small framed man. The word can also speak of someone who was young in age. He might have been younger than James, the son of Zebedee, so that his title, that this title would distinguish him as the younger of the two. In fact, even if if this is not what his nickname mainly referred to, it is probably true that he was younger than the other James. Otherwise, he would more likely have been known as James the Elder. But the most likely, what what the name most likely refers to is influence. James, the son of Zebedee was a man of prominence. His family was known to the high priest. Uh, That is probably how uh, Peter was able to gain access to uh, the high priest's courtyard uh, on the night night before uh, Christ was crucified because of the influence that, uh, that the sons of Zebedee had with the high priest. He was part of the Lord's most intimate inner circle. He was the better known of the two Jameses. Therefore, James, the son of Alphaeus, was known as James the Less, the cross, little James. Here's an interesting thought about James, son of Alphaeus. You may recall that according to Mark 2.14, Levi, or Matthew, was the son of a man named Alphaeus as well. It could be that this James was the brother of Matthew. They are both said to be the son of Alphaeus. And these these two Alphaeuses might be the same person. After all, Peter and Andrew were brothers and James and John were brothers. Why not these two? There is no effort on the part of scripture to distinguish between the two Alphaeuses. On the other hand, Matthew and James are nowhere identified as brothers. We simply don't know whether they were or not, but they could have been. Another interesting question about James lineage comes to light when we compare Mark 15:40 with John 19:25. Both verses mention two other Marys who were standing by the cross of Jesus with Mary the Lord's mother. Mark 15:40 mentions Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and of Joseph. John 19:25 names Jesus mother's sister Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. It is possible, perhaps even likely, that Jesus' mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary the mother of James the Less are the same person. Clopas may have been another name for Alphaeus, or James' mother might have remarried after his father died. That would have made James the Less, Jesus' cousin. So James the Less could have been the, the brother of Matthew, and he could have been the cousin of Jesus. Early church history is mostly silent about this man named James. Some of the earliest legends about him confuse him with James, the brother of the Lord. There is some evidence that James the last took the gospel to Syria and Persia. Accounts of his death differ. Some say he was stoned, others say he was beaten to death. Still others say he was crucified like his Lord. John, another well-known apostle. John died by most accounts around AD 98 during the reign of emperor Trajan. He is thought to be the only apostle who was not martyred. Jerome says in his commentary on Galatians that the aged apostle John was so frail in his final days at Ephesus that he had to be carried into the church. One phrase was constantly on his lips. My little children love one another. Asked why he always said this, he replied, it is the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, it is enough. Sometimes people uh, talk about or argue about what, what is really most important to be to, be, uh, to have love or to have a uh, correct doctrine. Well, they're really two, two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Because if we truly love our brothers and sisters, We won't want them or us to fall away into unsound doctrine. So, if we truly have love, we will want to maintain sound doctrine as well. Philip, the Apostle Philip, a disciple first and then, then later an apostle. Philip is a Greek name, meaning lover of horses. He must have also had a Hebrew name because all 12 apostles were Jewish. But his Hebrew name is never given. Perhaps Philip came from a family of Hellenistic Jews, Jews who had adopted the Greek culture, Greek language. Don't confuse Philip the Apostle with Philip the Deacon, the man we meet in Acts 6, who became an evangelist and led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. Philip the Apostle was a completely different individual. Tradition tells us that that Philip was Greatly used in the spread of the early church. and was among the first of the apostles to suffer martyrdom. By most accounts, he was put to death by stoning at Heliopolis in Phrygia, Asia Minor today. Eight years after the martyrdom of James. Before his death, multitudes came to Christ under his preaching. Nathaniel or Bartholomew. When we are introduced to Nathaniel in the Gospel of John, he is called Nathaniel. Jesus describes him as an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So Jesus spoke very highly of Nathanael. But in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's never called Nathanael. He's called Bartholomew. Bartholomew is a Hebrew surname, meaning son of Tolmai. Nathanael means God has given. So he is Nathanael, son of Tolmai, or Nathanael or Tolmai. Early church records indicate that Nathaniel ministered in Persia and in India and took the gospel as far as Armenia. Armenia, Armenia's claim to fame is that they were the first nation to accept Christianity, so they accepted uh, Christianity on, on a large scale. There is no reliable record of how he died. One tradition says he was tied up in a sack and cast into the sea another tradition says he was crucified by all accounts he was martyred like all the apostles except john matthew or levi in all likelihood none of the 12 12 was more notorious as a sinner than matthew the tax collector the most despised people in israel matthew was called by his hebrew name levi the son of Alphaeus. and i talked to you before about how matthew and James, the last named the brothers, yeah, in Mark 2, 14, he's talked, he's, talk, he's referred to as Levi, the son of Melvias. Luke refers to him as Levi in Luke 5, 27 through 29, and as Matthew, when he lists the 12 in Luke six fifteen and Acts 1, 13. So we know that, that Matthew and Levi are, are the same person. Tradition says Matthew ministered to the Jews, both in Israel and abroad for many years before being martyred for his faith. There is no reliable record of how he was put to death, but the earliest traditions indicate he was burned at the stake. Thus, this man who walked away from a lucrative career without ever giving a second thought. Remained willing to give his all for Christ. To the very end. Matthias was the man chosen to replace Judas Iscariot. We will read about that in Acts chapter 1. The similarity of the names Matthew and Matthias uh, somewhat complicates the the interpretation of traditions concerning these two men. We're not always sure uh, to which of the two of the traditions are referring, Matthew or Matthias. Thomas, the twin. Thomas is usually nicknamed Doubting Thomas but that may not be the most fitting label for him. He was, a, he was a better man than the popular lore would indicate. Thomas, according to John 11:16, was also called Didymus, which means the twin. Apparently he had a twin brother or a twin sister, but his, his twin is never identified in scripture. There is a considerable amount of ancient testimony that suggests Thomas carried the gospel as far as India. There is to this day, a small hill near the airport in Chennai, Madras, India, where Thomas is said to have been buried. And as uh, Ryan Zoig will tell you, if you talk to Christians in India today, uh, they will not admit that, that it's just tradition or um, you know, Legend or tradition that, that that Thomas went to India, they are certain that, that Thomas is the one who brought the gospel to India. There are churches in South India whose roots are traceable to the beginning of the church age and tradition says they were founded under the ministry of Thomas. The strongest traditions say he was martyred for his faith by being run through with a spear, a fitting form of martyrdom for one whose faith came of age when he saw the spear mark in his master's side. Simon the Zealot. The name given in Luke 6:15 is Simon called the Zealot. In Matthew 10:4 and Mark 3:18, he is called Simon the Canaanite. That is not a reference to the land of Canaan or the village of Canaan. It comes from the Hebrew word Kana, which means to be zealous. Simon was apparently at one time a member of the political party known as the Zealots. The fact that he bore this title all his life may also suggest that he had a fiery, zealous temperament. But that term in Jesus' day signified a well-known and widely feared outlaw political sect, and Simon had apparently been a member of that sect. Several early sources say that after the destruction of Jerusalem, Simon took the gospel to the north and west and preached in the British Isles. Like so many of the others, Simon simply disappears from the biblical record. There is no reliable record of what happened to him, but all accounts say he was killed for preaching the gospel. This man who was once willing to kill and be killed for a political agenda within the confines of Judah found a more fruitful cause for which to give his life in the proclamation of salvation for sinners out of every nation, tongue, and tribe. Judas, not Iscariot, three names. There's nothing wrong with the name Judas, just because that was the name that was born by Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Judas is simply the Greek version of the Hebrew name Judah, or Yehuda, as we say in Hebrew. The name means Yahweh leads. So There's nothing wrong with the name. In addition to Judas Iscariot, and this Judas, one of the the 12 disciples, Judas, the son of James, uh, one of Jesus' brothers, the man we know as Jude, was also named Judas is not this the carpenter's son is not his mother called mary and are not his brothers james and joseph and simon and judas so the name jude is given to the book of jude in order to distinguish him from judas iscariot but his name was judas so there are there are two books of the new testament which are written by brothers of Jesus, the book of James and the book of Jude. Judas, the son of James, actually had three names. Jerome referred to him as Trinomius, the man with three names. So that's his claim to fame. Some of the disciples had two names, but Judas, not Iscariot, is the only one who had three names. In Matthew 10.3, he is called Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Judas was probably uh, given to him at birth. Labaius and Thaddeus were essentially nicknames. Thaddeus means breast child, evoking the idea of a nursing baby. It almost has a derisive sound like mama's boy. Perhaps he was the youngest in his family and therefore uh, the, the baby among several siblings, especially cherished by his mother. His other name, Labaius, is similar, it is from a Hebrew root that refers to the heart, literally heart child. Most of the early tradition regarding Labaius, Thaddeus, suggests that a few years after Pentecost, he took the Gospel north to Edessa, a royal city in Mesopotamia, in the region of Turkey today. There are numerous ancient accounts of how he healed the king of Edessa, a man named Abgar. In the fourth century, Eusebius, the historian, said the archives at Edessa, now destroyed, they no, they no longer exist, but in Eusebius' day they did, contain full records of Thaddeus' visit and the healing of Abgar. Most of the early tradition. Regarding Labaius Thaddeus, suggests that a few years after Pentecost, he took the gospel north to Edessa. The traditional uh, apostolic symbol of Judas Labaius Thaddeus is a club, because tradition says he was clubbed to death for his faith. Now, on to the church fathers. We talk a lot about the church fathers. Well, what is a church father? In the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, a standard reference work of Christianity, the church fathers are described as those authors who wrote between the end of the first century and the close of the eighth century, which comprises what is termed the patristic age. The Latin word for father is pater, P-A-T-E-R, Potter, And so the study of the church fathers is called patristics. These authors, this entry continues, defended the gospel against heresies and misunderstandings. They composed extensive commentaries on the Bible, explanatory, doctrinal, and practical, and published innumerable sermons, largely on the same subject. They exhibited the meaning and implications of the uh, creeds. They recorded past and current events in church history, and they related christian faith to the best thought of their own age in another major reference work dealing with christianity's history and theology christianity the complete guide it is noted that while there is no official list of the fathers so scholars will differ on who they call church fathers there are at least four characteristics that denote those meriting the title of church father first their orthodoxy of doctrine they're being accepted by the church as important links in the transmission of the Christian faith, their holiness of life, and their having lived between the end of the apostolic era and the deaths of John of Damascus in the East and Isidore of Seville in the West. So that gives us a, a time frame of when the church fathers lived. Recent study of the fathers This article goes on to say has tended to broaden the category of church father to include some figures many in the ancient church viewed with suspicion, namely figures like Tertullian and Origen. So I'll point out their their um, aberrant views when we get to them. Both Tertullian and Origen held some views which were aberrant, and I'll, I'll talk about them when we get to the particular. Church Fathers. The Church Father that we're going to look at this evening is a man named Ignatius of Antioch. In the seven letters of Ignatius of Antioch, we possess one of the richest resources for understanding Christianity in the era immediately following that of the Apostles. These letters manifest, in the words of biblical scholar Bruce Metzger, such strong faith and overwhelming love of Christ as to make them one of the finest literary expressions of Christianity during the second century. Ignatius was the Bishop of Antioch. We don't know much about his life. He was arrested sometime between 107 and 110 by the Roman authorities and sentenced to death. We only become acquainted with him when he is about to be executed. While Ignatius was being transported from Antioch to Rome by ten Roman soldiers, whom he likened to savage lovers, he wrote seven letters, one to an individual polycarp and six to churches along the way. Of the six to churches, one was written to the Roman church, a church to which he had no personal link. The other five were written to churches with which he did have a personal link. What crime had Ignatius committed? We don't know for certain, but the Roman writer Tacitus accused Christians of hatred of the human race. Why would Christians who preached a message of divine love and who were commanded to love even their enemies be accused of such a vice? Well, if one looks at it through the eyes of Roman paganism, the logic seems irrefutable. It was, after all. The, the pagan gods, the Roman gods who kept the empire secure. But Christians refused to worship these gods. Thus, the charge of atheism that was sometimes leveled at them. Therefore, many of their pagan neighbors reasoned they could not love the emperor or the empire's inhabitants. Christians were thus viewed as fundamentally anti Roman and saw a positive danger to the empire. And one of the most prominent Christians killed in the early second century by the Roman imperium as an enemy of the state was Ignatius, bishop of the church in Antioch of Syria. It is evident that three concerns were uppermost in Ignatius' mind as he wrote his letters. First of all, he longed to see unity at every level in the life of the local churches to which he was writing. It is important to note that this commitment to Christian unity did not override a passion for truth. Unity was unity in the gospel and in the Christian faith. Thus his second major concern was an ardent desire that his fellow believers stand fast in their common faith against heresy. While there is no scholarly consensus as to the number of heresies in view in Ignatius' letters, it is clear that one of them was a form of docetism and I talked about this before uh, when I was going through the epistles of the, God, of the apostle John. Docetism, which maintained that the incarnation of Christ and consequently his death and resurrection did not really take place. They were just illusory. Finally, Ignatius was eager to recruit the help of his correspondents in the successful completion of his own vacation, which was nothing less than a call to martyrdom. Of the three areas of Ignatius letters, it is his desire for martyrdom that has occasioned the most criticism, as a number of scholars have suggested that Ignatius remarks about his death reveal a man mentally unbalanced. They say that Ignatius was always writing about his impending death, about his martyrdom. They say that that is a man mentally unbalanced. Well, a careful study of Ignatius thinking about his own death reveals a man who rightly knew that Christian believing demands passionate engagement of the entire person even to the point of physical death we only become acquainted with Ignatius after he has been condemned to die to be executed so of course he talked a lot about his impending martyrdom you would do if you were in similar circumstances The only writings we have of Ignatius of Antioch are those that were written after he was um, after he was sentenced to death. Uh, In Ignatius ecclesiology, the bishop is vital to the unity of the local church. The communities to which Ignatius is writing are wrestling with the presence of heresy. And Ignatius is convinced that one Orthodox leader in the congregation, the bishop, can secure that congregation's orthodoxy. It is not the case that the Bishop of Antioch is overly enchanted with the idea of monopiscopacy per se. There's probably a great deal of truth to what Ignatius was saying, because this is the early church, a time when the leaders of the local churches had either been directly taught by the apostles or had been taught by someone who had been directly taught by the apostles. So it's probably true that having one bishop, one leader of each local church was the best guarantee that they would remain faithful and not fall victim to heresy. But something profound is happening here as far as how it affected the church later on. In the new testament the terms bishop and elder are used interchangeably uh, incidentally episkopos is, is the greek word the word for bishop from which we take the word episcopal and elder is the word the greek word from which we take the word presbyterian But the idea of a monoebiscopacy that is that each area would have one bishop with several elders under him was the beginning of the notion of a hierarchy within the church. So that is the impact that it had on later church history, either for good or ill. And and that generally remains the case even today. Um, in those churches which are not part of a denominational hierarchical structure there usually tends to be one senior pastor in each local church so even in in churches which have multiple elders usually one of the elders uh predominates he's the, the senior pastor The road Ignatius probably traveled, the main highway across southern Asia Minor, ran westward to Ephesus, where travelers, or in this case a prisoner, would take a ship to go either directly to Italy or on up the coast to Troas. Near Laodicea, though, his guards turned north and west to Philadelphia and later to Smyrna, where Ignatius apparently stayed for some time. Polycarp, and Polycarp was an important figure in church history, because Polycarp was taught directly by the apostle John. Polycarp, recently appointed Bishop of Smyrna, sought to minister to his needs upon his arrival in that town. So when Ignatius arrived in Smyrna, Polycarp went to see him. When he, uh, Ignatius came to Smyrna, there were also representatives of three other churches to meet him. Damas, the Bishop of Magnesia on the Meander had come along with two elders from his church, Bassus and Apollonius and a deacon, Zotian. From Traulus came the Bishop Polymius, and from Ephesus, a number of leaders. Onesimus, the Bishop, a deacon by the name of Burrus and Crocus, Eupolis and Fronto. This Onesimus, the bishop at Ephesus, may very well be the same Onesimus that the Apostle Paul wrote to Philemon about. The, uh, the time frame fits. So it could be that, that very Onesimus who eventually became the bishop of the church at Ephesus. So Incidentally, the the I mentioned magnesium. Uh, the apostle Philip drank milk from this place, Magnesia. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's called Philip's Milk of Magnesia. Just kidding. I couldn't resist. It was at Smyrna that Ignatius wrote the letter to the Roman church, which contains the heart of his reflection about his martyrdom. This is the only letter of Ignatius that is dated. He was writing it, he tells the Roman believers, on the ninth day before the calends of September, that is, August 24th. Obviously, a date is included because he wishes to give the church at Rome some idea of when to expect him. Not long after writing this letter to the Roman church, the Antiochian bishop left Smyrna for Troas. This stage in Ignatius journey is not clear. The soldiers took him to Troas either by road or by a vessel that would have sailed within sight of the shore. We are also uncertain as to how long they stopped at Troas. Ignatius, however, was able to write three more letters from there, letters to the churches at Philadelphia, and Smyrna, and finally to the one man who had befriended him in Smyrna, Polycarp. Polycarp himself was later murdered. The Roman soldiers and their Christian prisoners seemed to have left Troas in something of a hurry and made their way to Neapolis in Macedonia. From there, they would have passed through uh, Philippi to Dyrrachium, on what is now the Adriatic coast. From Dyrrachium, they probably would have taken another ship for Brondisium in Italy and then by land made their way to Rome. At this point, a curtain is drawn across the historical events and nothing more of Ignatius' earthly career is known for certain, except the report by Polycarp to the church at Philippi that he was martyred, presumably at Rome. I've uh, included in my PowerPoint, uh, a map of the Eastern Roman Empire. So uh, those of you who are interested can find out the location of some of these cities that I've mentioned, uh, like Trellis and so forth. And of course, I'm sure you want to know where Magnesia is located. While the church disapproved of people volunteering to be martyrs, there are a number of Christian texts from the second century that displayed the awareness that the martyrdom, that martyrdom was a calling, a gift from the Spirit that he would use to build up the body of Christ. Ignatius' letter to the Romans is certainly a key passage in this regard. For Ignatius, martyrdom is the clearest way to express his devotion to Christ and his rejection of the world but he is quite aware that there are other ways to, to journey. For example, he is urging of the, of the believers in Rome to express their devotion to Christ by allowing him to die as a martyr, clearly indicates an awareness that his path of discipleship and theirs are not identical. He actually urged them not to try to use their influence with Roman authorities to get him off the hook. Although Ignatius might see martyrdom as the straighter road upon which he must travel he is not denying the fact that there are other paths that other disciples may travel he's not saying that every christian has to be a martyr in this regard it is vital to note that he does not exhort any of the believers in rome or for that matter any of his other correspondents to join him as a martyr he obviously does not see martyrdom as being essential to discipleship A final aspect of ignatius thinking about his martyrdom is the way that he believes it forms a bulwark against a species of false teaching that threatened at least a couple of the churches to which he was writing namely those in smyrna and in travis present even during the days of the apostles the proponents of this perspective known as docetism denied the death of christ and asserted that christ's sufferings were not genuine Ignatius uses what was becoming a technical word to describe these theological opponents of poor Christian teaching. They have embraced heresy. Hyrasis is the Greek word. Moreover, according to Ignatius, those who have embraced this false teaching do not live godly lives, for they have broken with the church, refusing to attend the Lord's table or to pray together with the church. While docetism was not part and parcel of every variant of second century heresy, it can be found in a goodly variety of heretical documents from that period. In the second century, the letter of Peter to Philip, an apocryphal work, for example, it is is asserted that Jesus is a stranger to suffering. In another text of the same ilk, the first apocalypse of James, a statement is attributed to Christ in which he affirms, never have I suffered in any way. Well, we know that that's not true. Now in the letter to the church at Smyrna, Ignatius makes a powerful connection between his own death and that of Christ. He writes that Christ was truly pierced by nails in his human flesh and truly suffered. It is thus necessary to confess over against the heretics that his passion was no unreal illusion, nor is Christ's physical resurrection an illusion. For my own part, Ignatius declares, I know and believe that he was an actual human flesh even after his resurrection. Ignatius finds proof for this declaration in the resurrection accounts in Luke 24, where Christ appeared to his disciples, challenged their unbelief, and urged them to eat and drink with him. The docetists were correct and all of the lord jesus life were only an illusion then ignatius declares with biting sarcasm these chains of mind must be illusory too from the point of view of docetism if christ did not really suffer it was meaningless for any of his disciples to take such a pathway martyrdom was thus not a distinctive characteristic of the docetist communities a number of second century authors after ignatius Indeed, note the absence of martyrs among such communities. But Christ's suffering was real, and this validated the physical suffering of his people. So apparently, the Docetists were uh, only interested in having their best life now. Ignatius martyrdom was thus a powerful defense of the saving reality of the incarnation and crucifixion, and suffering a violent death Ignatius was confessing that the Lord had also actually suffered a violent demise and through it brought salvation to it to dying humanity. So important was that confession. So central was it to Christian Orthodoxy that it was worth dying for. In our, in, in our day, when Christians are being martyred around the globe, Ignatius confession should not be forgotten. So that concludes our, our study this evening Ignatius of Antioch and next time we meet uh, which will be in two weeks we will once again pick up where we left off and, and look at more of the early church fathers so we'll conclude now with a word of prayer Father in heaven we are so thankful that down through the years, down through the centuries, there have always been men and women who remained faithful to you, who stood for the truth. We're not victims of the various heretical teachings that existed then and now. We, we thank you for them. We thank you for people who did remain faithful, did remain strong, did com- continue to stand for the truth that your word might might be preserved for us today. We ask that you would help us to continue that legacy and to pass it on to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.